This is the Living Vertizano podcast brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today finishes Haggai as we look at Haggai 2, 10 through 23, where Haggai offers God's blessing to defiled Israel and identifies Zerubbabel as God's signet ring. Together, we will be discussing how obedience leads to restoration. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizano podcast uh, with you again this week as we uh, finish up our journey through Haggai. Just as a quick reminder, in our episode last week, we looked at Haggai uh, 115 part B uh, to chapter 2 verse 9 with Haggai's second word from God for the Israelites surrounding their discouragement with the temple. And from that, we discussed the effectiveness of God's glory in our lives as we say yes to his call to step out in faith. Um, This week, we're going to be finishing, like I said, finishing our conversation on Haggai, where we look at uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. And within this passage, we will hear of God's blessing of the defiled people of Israel and the identification of Zerubbabel as God's signet ring. So this is going to be the the third and fourth word from God through Haggai that we're looking at today. So uh, I believe we have Brittany reading for us. So Brittany, would you read Haggai 2, 10 through 23? Yes. Haggai 2, verse 10. On December 18, on the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord sent his this message to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of the heavens armies says. Ask the priests this question about the law. If one of you is carrying some meat from a holy sacrifice in his robes, and his robe happens to brush against some bread or stew, wine or olive oil, or any kind of food, will it also become holy? The priest replied, no. Then Haggai asks, if someone becomes ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person and then touches any of these foods, will the food be defiled? And the priest answered, yes. Then Haggai responded, This is how it is with this people and this nation, says the Lord. Everything they do and everything they offer is defiled by their sin. Look at what is happening to you before you began to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. When you hoped for a 20-bushel crop, you harvested only 10. When you expected to draw 50 gallons from the wine press, you found only 20. I sent blight and mildew and hail to destroy everything you worked so hard to produce. Even so, you refuse to return to me, says the Lord. Think about this 18th day of December and the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Think carefully. I'm giving you a promise now, while the seed is still in the barn. You have not yet harvested your grain, and your grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, and olive trees have not yet produced their crops. But from this day onward... I will bless you. On that same day, December 18, the Lord sent this second message to Haggai. Tell Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, that I am about to shake the heavens from the earth. I will overthrow royal thrones and destroy the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overturn their chariots and riders. The horses will fall and their riders will kill each other. But when this happens, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will honor you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, my servant, 
I will make you like a signet ring on my finger, says the Lord, for I have chosen you. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. All right. Thank you for reading that for us, Brittany. Um, Let's just jump right into a conversation here. What are you guys seeing? um, Maybe what questions do you have? What observations do you have as we look at this passage? So I think right away from reading this, I feel like I had to go back and look a little bit at the conversation in verses 10 through 14, where the priests are being asked these questions. And at first glance, I feel like it could be that Haggai is kind of quizzing the priests, but I I think that that's probably not the case. Rather, that Haggai is asking them rhetorical questions to set the stage for a point that he's going to to make. In fact, I think in some resources, it's even referred to as he's setting the stage for a modern day, or at this time, a modern day parable. And so as I'm looking into this, the Levitical law surrounding the defilement is the the priests at the time would have been very well versed in this and they would have understood that anything that is unholy can make things become unholy. So if something is defiled, it will make everything else around it defiled, but the reverse is not true. And so um, when I think about this, I think about probably because we just came out of Matthew, I think about the good Samaritan and I think about Mm -hmm. how the priests and Levites were trying to stay away from the injured man, um, in case heaven forbid he's, he's dead. And if he's dead then, or if they touch the blood, you know, then all of a sudden they're going in to try, try to participate in worship and they're not going to be allowed to do that if they've been defiled now for coming in contact with this. And so this was something that the priests would have taken very, very seriously, so much so that they would avoid helping a man who is in desperate need to keep these laws. And so Jesus will call that out, you know, hundreds of years from now. But for now, right, they're sitting pretty on these laws that say, no, 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 everything that is defiled will make something else defiled, and the reverse is not true. And so um, that kind of sets the stage for this parable here. And then the other piece that I think I was considering a little bit as we read this first part, so verses 10 through 19, before we jump into the section about Zerubbabel being the Lord's signet ring, I was interested in understanding kind of what is going on at this time, because it seems like when we came out of last week, we're good now, right? We're good to go. Um, Everybody's made this adjustment and this change based on Haggai's message. And so everything should be fine at this point. Now they're building the temple as they're supposed to be. And so I guess I had some questions about why it is that Haggai even needs to deliver this seemingly repetitive message Mm -hmm. a little bit again, just two months later. From what we can tell, it seems like the first message, or not the first of this book, but last week's message came um, in October, on October 17th or thereabouts. And this one is again, December 18th. And if we turn to Zechariah, I'm just going to go ahead and read from chapter one, and I'm going to read chapter one, one through six. And it says in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, which is, if you look up the Jewish calendar, or if you read an NLT version of the Bible, it will tell us November, right, Brittany? Mm-hmm. So in the month of November, in the second year of Darius. So uh, sandwiched between these two oracles. Right. So, yes. Yeah, so coming 
Yes, in between what happened last week and where we are now entering the scene this week. So this maybe gives us the best peek into what might be going on among these people because Zachariah has a message for them in between. Mm -hmm. And so um, as we read this, kind of think about the context, I guess, that Zachariah's message is coming into and maybe we can piece together what the occasion might be that Haggai is trying to address. So in other words, what's going on in this time that Haggai might need to address. Mm -hmm. So starting uh, Zechariah chapter one, verse one, in the month of November, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. And so that's, for me, it's a call back to what we've been kind of studying all throughout scripture. And really, since, since the beginning of this journey with Israel, we see this continual self-reliance. They're dependent on self. They forget about God. And then, you know, God brings this to their attention and then there's repentance. And then we enter the cycle again and again and again. And it seems like that's exactly kind of what's happening here because Haggai gives this message um, of, Hey, I'm going to bless it. My, my, I'm coming. Don't worry. My glory will fill this temple. And then it's like self-reliance, right? They slip back into their self-reliance. And so Zechariah comes and he tries to remind them, Hey, remember when you tried to be self-reliant, it was disastrous for you. And so again, now it seems like they must have slipped back into that self-reliance because here we are again, where Haggai is pointing out, listen, you guys are all defiled. Mm -hmm. And so anything you put your hand to is also going to be defiled. And so I think we just see this cycle continuing and it's on a short cycle. Um, I mean, we're talking about a month, right? So it's mm-hmm. just a handful of weeks before they've kind of lost sight of, of this repentant heart that they had maybe for a moment. And so it's this continual reminding from the Lord. And again, there's not a whole lot of information about this, but this is one of the few clues that I was able to stumble upon. And so um, it's helped me kind of see a little bit Uh, into maybe what was going on in this time when Haggai's message came to the people. Yeah. And I think uh, with this and some of the, the research that I was doing, um, you, you would see this understanding validated. Um, So in in the NIV, it says on the 24th day of the ninth month, not saying not, not identifying like December as the month that we are in. Um, So this is, back to like the Jewish dating instead of the Gregorian calendar dating that we understand today. Um, but in recognizing it as the ninth month, um, this month would not have necessarily been a month of significance uh, as it pertains to like religious celebrations that would be taking place. Um, and so nothing's going on there. Uh, but again, we have like Haggai with all of the people like speaking to them, like something is happening. Um, and so 
that it made me wonder like what is happening and as i so kind of like what is it that's drawn them to gather here right, anyway yeah. why are they all together like why it, are the priests out and about and why is haggai able to come in exactly okay exactly um and as i dug into that a little bit i i found and i'm probably going to butcher the <laughs> the proper pronunciation of it but in ancient mesopotamia which is again kind of where we're at um there was this ceremony that was regularly done with like the building of a new holy space like a, a new place of worship regardless of which civilization you were part of it was something that was pretty common throughout prevalent throughout and it was called a kalu or kalu i don't know it's k a l u um so a kalu ceremony and in this ceremony specifically the foundation of the new uh, worship space or or holy place, whatever temple, would be laid, and as a symbol um, of that work being completed, a stone from the old temple, the old worship place, would be brought and placed in the foundation, like signifying this is done, like putting a stamp on it, and so. When you read uh, specifically what verse 15, it says, consider how things were uh, before one stone was laid on another. kind of gives a glimpse to potentially that being the case. But then also verse 18, from this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. And the reason why I say those are hints to it is like, We've already established when we first started our conversation in Haggai with our conversation on Ezra that the foundation was being laid. And then there was a pause. And then we know from the beginning of Haggai, so we're talking months ago now, the foundation was like being worked on. And so for for these statements to be made, it would almost seem like these statements are out of place and belong somewhere else, if not for this actually being indicative of this Kalu ceremony taking place where like they, the people are coming to consecrate this space themselves. Like they're, they're claiming essentially they're putting their stamp on it. Not only is it done, but now this is like, this is a holy place. Um, and so when you think about it in that context, it makes a whole lot of sense why Haggai would be coming to this party <laughs> And, and drawing out of them, not necessarily, you know, calling down to them like you are defiled, but asking them these rhetorical questions, bringing them to the realization that, oh man, like we are a defiled people. And according to the laws that we live our lives by, there's no way that we can be the one who like establish this place as, as holy. Like that's not, a, that's not for us. Um, and so I, I, I thought that was interesting bringing that all together and being able to answer the why of why are they all together like this? Well, that that's one possibility as to why they're all together. And it really fits with what you were talking about, about this conversation of defiled versus holy and, and what Haggai was trying to establish at the beginning of this passage. And, and I feel like they've gotten the, the why wrong. Like they they think that they've come to just do the practice of consecrating the temple. Their why is all wrong. Like they think there's something that they can do to make the temple holy. And 
Um, Haggai very clearly alludes to the fact that they are not what makes it holy. And everything that they touch um, will be that, will be defiled, because they're unclean, because they have the wrong why. Because there are people that are used to having a set of rules and following a set of rules, and, you know, it's very cut and dry, like it's a, very much a sacrifice-based like mentality. They do what they're asked to do, um, but they, they seem to have the wrong why. Their focus is on... I even feel like this idea of, of thinking back to the day that the foundation was laid, in, if they're not careful, their their thought on the day the foundation is laid is always going to be like a a place of like bitterness. Right. Yeah, oh, oh. bitterness. Because like, you know, they're thinking, well, we thought that we should have a temple like Solomon mm-hmm. built. And there's like this bitterness in their heart. And it's as if Haggai is like, hey, don't forget like that bitterness that you carried is not what, not where, like, that's not what's going to make this place holy. So in, in hearing this conversation and reflecting on what Haggai is saying to them then and what he might be saying to us now, uh, I mean, I really think the message is the same. Maybe the, the uh, particularities are different, but I, I think it's, the statement that just because we are doing kingdom work, Israelites are rebuilding the the temple. Maybe we're participating in the kingdom in, in some way or another, like insert how you're, how you're working for the kingdom. But just because we are doing kingdom work does not mean that we are holy people. We must not confuse work with a disposition of the heart and then the subsequent transformation that is brought by the Spirit. Like our work is not what makes us clean. Our work is not what justifies us. That's Christ. Um, and so as we give ourselves to laboring on behalf of the kingdom, um, I guess, you know, I, I think about it, I'm a pastor, right? And so there's a lot of things that I am doing that could be easily on the outside identified as quote kingdom work. But just because I'm doing those things does not mean that I'm walking in obedience in like heart obedience with Jesus, which is what is required and what is expected of us. I think to conversations that we had months ago as we were working through Matthew and the the Sermon on the Mount and you know just leading into that like Jesus is actually having a conversation about uh the law a- and he says unless you here I let me turn to it. That's what so it says 20 um Jesus actually says for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is drawing this line that it's not just perfect action, but as he goes on to explain throughout the, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he, he focuses on the heart and the heart being right. I mean, if we're going to talk about like right action, like the Pharisees did live like outwardly this this very perfect looking life where they were in line with all of this stuff 
And yet Jesus says they are still falling short of my expectations and what I have called you to. And, and the way that they are falling short is because of their heart, that disposition of their heart. And I, the same conversation is, is what Haggai is having here with the Israelites as well. I just don't think we need to be a Jonah. Like our heart shouldn't be that way. Don't be a Jonah. Yes, God used him. He God, God did what God wanted to do through Jonah. But I mean, I don't want to be that kind of like. It feels very much the same. Like it's a right action, but not a right heart. Um, and even when the points of like he has these points of repentance, but then he like you know he has these points of gravitating back. And so like when we do, when we do what God asks us to do. Don't do it with bitterness. And I really think that's, like, for me, that's that call to that. Like, when you remember this day, like, don't do the things that I've asked you to do with that bitterness in your heart about it's it's not the temple that I had envisioned. Good, well, the temple's not for you. The temple's for the presence. And so, like, who cares what it looks like on the outside? Yeah, exactly. And I think, furthermore, as we continue reading verses 15 through 19, there's also this presentation from Haggai to the people that as you work, as you bring these offerings or attempt to accomplish these kingdom things before God, don't forget that everything you do as a human will fall short. If He's not in it. And it's not until his glory comes, his present comes and fills up your work and fills up your efforts that we're going to actually see the kingdom come. There's nothing that we can do in our own right. There's nothing that the Israelites could do in their own right to rebuild Jerusalem. Um, in verse 15, it, it says, consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple when anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to wine, the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. And so in every instance where work was done, preparations were made, it still never was enough because it's never enough in our own strength. It's never enough as we're trying to be self-reliant or dependent on ourselves. He is the only thing that can make it enough. And in Haggai's message, his previous message that came in October, he he told them, listen, don't worry about it. My glory right. will fill this place. Right. It's not your ceremonies that will consecrate this place. It's my glory that will make this enough. It will make your work enough. And I think a lot of times we probably just need to hear that. We need to hear that we can do and do and do and do and still be accomplishing so little because we're not allowing him to be the one to consecrate. We're not allowing him to maybe even lead sometimes. We're just doing good things, right? We've talked about this before, doing good things, but it's not the best because he's the only one who can make it the best. He's the only one who can make it perfect. And I think that the closing statement of verse 19, again, just affirms that. From this day on, I will bless you. Not you will be blessed. Not you will experience a blessing. Like God says, I will 
bless you. And so if there is any doubt in their mind of how this gets accomplished, the, the period on all of it is I will do it. It will be because of me. So this then brings us to this last uh, section of Haggai chapter 2, this, this fourth um, word from God directed towards Zerubbabel, uh, where he um, now is identified as the, the signet ring of God. So what exactly is a signet ring? So uh, a signet ring is actually um, a ring that uh, would have the uh, seal of a king on it, and the wearer of this ring essentially was able to act in uh, such a way that they, they have the authority of the king. So this wouldn't necessarily be a king, um, maybe more think of it as like a, an ambassador. What will we understand an ambassador, ambassador, what we understand an ambassador to be today, this would be what a signet ring was then. And so for Zerubbabel to be identified as the signet ring of God, it, it's understood that Zerubbabel is, is walking with the authority of God, with the blessing of God and the authority of God. Um, and you know, with with that, you you kind of take a step back and look at the the whole of what's been going on here in Haggai, uh, what was started at, in Ezra and at the end of Second Chronicles with the um, rebuilding of the temple and this identification of Zerubbabel as the signet ring of God, really kind of fits nicely in this repetition of this this cycle of of what's going on in Israel as we've brought up numerous times throughout this this uh uh my this conversation this conversation um back in in David's time David desired so deeply to build a house for God and you know if you remember back to like our, what is that? Second Samuel, um, like God says, no, you're not going to be the one to build a house for me, but because of your desire to build me a place, I am going to build you a dynasty. And so there will never fail to be somebody from your line on the throne. You will have an everlasting dynasty. And that was, in response to his desire to build him a house. And, and I can't um, help but see the similarities here where Zerubbabel, along with Joshua, right? But Zerubbabel was kind of the, the figurehead in place. He was the, the political figure that was the driving force behind the rebuilding of the, uh, the temple of God here in, in this return from exile. And now you have this restoration of the Davidic line. If you go to Matthew, you can read the the genealogy of Jesus from Adam to, to Christ. And you see in that last third of the genealogy, you see Zerubbabel's name mentioned. 
And so you see him in Matthew as a part of this line of David. And so, you know, coming back into this, this conversation, like God is restoring with the restoration of the temple, restoring also this Davidic dynasty that was promised to David so long ago. It really feels like a book of, of just how this whole book of Haggai, uh, of how obedience leads to restoration, restoration of the temple, restoration of the glory, the, the temple being filled with the glory of God, restoration of the people of Israel. And, restoration and the, of the promise. Right. Uh, not just one promise, but he right. several promises that yep. we see. And so it really feels like a book of how obedience will lead to restoration. And really, I mean, we don't see it perfected until we get to the New Testament, but we... It's as if like God is pointing in this direction of of where the the kingdom is headed, ushering in this new kingdom, and what that looks like, and we're seeing it here, like in the people of Israel, in these opportunities, and how God is so gracious and continually reminding them um, of just what the call is. Like it would have been easy for him to be like, "That's it. Like you don't want to do it. That's fine. Like I'm gonna hand you back over." Like they just came out of exile, and he's still like not willing to give up. Like he's not willing to just throw in the towel. Like he so much desires our restoration to take place that he just keeps giving us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. As you journey with us, we recommend purchasing Midweek Meditations, A Journey Through Haggai and Malachi, which is available for purchase on Amazon. Also, be sure to follow the Living Vertizontal podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about The Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.